0: Early season do's and don'ts, some hot starts, some cold starts, the rule of 13, all of this and more with Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, cause Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. and welcome to baseball hq radio for tuesday april 19th it's show number 19 of the 2016 fantasy baseball season i am patrick david your host and we have another great tuesday tout show for you we'll talk with todd zola of masters ball rotowire and espn fantasy about how to play the early season about hot starts like nolan arenado and rich hill cold starts like Corey kluber and some what's going on starts like aaron nola About managing trade negotiations through your website's trade offer mechanism. We'll have studs and duds and much more. It's another big Tuesday tout show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Is it time to do something? Or time to exercise excruciating patience? We gotta talk some baseball. And in this Tuesday Tout Edition, it's a pleasure to once again welcome to the show one of our favorite guests. You know him from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN Fantasy, and of course from his many appearances here on this podcast, Todd Zola. Welcome back. It's been a little while. It's been a while, Patrick. Great to be back. How are your teams doing so far in your various experts leagues, NFBC, that kind of thing? How does the year shape up so far? I know it's early.
1: It's early, but you know the, the the concern is injuries, and I've been hit with a uh, you know I got Tyson Ross in a lot of places, and uh, we talk a lot about my my man crush on AJ Pollock. I have him, and where I don't have him, I got Charlie Blackman. So I've I've got injuries to overcome, but the the, the other flip side is everybody's going to have injuries. I'd rather have now where the free agent pool or my reserve list. Is a little bit more plush to be able to replace these players and, and gain some stats and, and, and see what happens later in the year than you know, to lose this guy in the middle of the season and not have as many assets to available to replace him.
0: Of course, in Pollock's case, it uh, looks like he's not probably not going to come back to anytime soon, but I believe uh, Charlie Blackman should be back in a week or three. We talked about him uh, last Friday with... Uh, uh, with Ray Murphy on the uh, on the National League market watch, and it sounds like they're just kind of being cautious about this uh, toe situation, lest to it get out of hand.
1: Yeah. Now, before before he was hurt, he he was sitting against a couple of lefties, which maybe the toe was a little bit hurt. I don't know, but that's that's a situation to monitor as well. Is when he does come back, is he that top of the order play? You know, six out of seven games, seven out of seven games a week. Or is he going to be platooned? I don't. They don't seem to have anybody, really, especially that can play center. So I'm not horribly concerned. But it was interesting before he got hurt that he did miss a couple of games versus lefties.
0: Maybe they're worried that he's more prone to fouling balls off his toes when he's facing left-handed pitching. Maybe Colorado
1: in general is just terrible versus left-handed pitching. So it doesn't surprise me that they want to get a little bit of a spark in there. Um, I don't know if Brandon Barnes over Charlie Blackman is, is the spark you want, though. (laughs)
0: that's for sure kind of getting ahead of ourselves a bit uh, you had a rotowire piece late last week uh, offering some advice about what to do and more importantly what not to do in the early part of the season it's so tempting for us to be real active in the early part of the season and it used to be that that was the way that the experts told us to behave like react quickly make your moves Uh, I got a laugh in the opening part of your article you said a fellow tout advised owners not to look at the standings and then you noted but we all do and amen to that don't you think there really is some use in looking at where you stand even early in the running like this you know I don't know
1: on a personal on a personal basis no I, I really I really don't I think that there's some use and maybe it might help to know where you are because somebody else does and if you get into a trade talk with them you look like an idiot if you don't know what place you're in but there's you know because you know you said you got to laugh. You know the other little goofy joke is if I'm in first place, it's because I drafted a really good team, and if I'm in last place, I'm you know it's it's just dumb luck so far. So I don't know. I, I don't I, I don't I honestly don't care where I am. But I mean I'm not lying. I, I sure I look at the standings. And I may even look at the live standing once in a while. But uh, I I don't I don't panic. I don't think it really alters my 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 attack, my fab, my trading, especially early in this season where there's a bunch of rainouts and just some weird matchups going on. I need to let the schedule even out to get a better feel for what my team, you know, is on pace to do before I panic one way, well not panic one way or another, before I panic or get overly confident.
0: I don't mind knowing where I stand uh, kind of on a weekly basis. I look every night, but I really look on Sundays when I do my free agent moves and so forth. And it's not so much where I am, it's where I am relative to everybody else in the categories. I want to know, for instance, is somebody already running away with home runs or stolen bases? Is somebody already running away with saves? Because that could change how I think about my team, not necessarily to make an action right on that basis, but to think... Well, I got to keep an eye on this because down the road, I may really be out of touch in saves and therefore whatever save sources I have on my squad might be better advised to ship them out and try to get something for it. But you raise an interesting point. You said it's it's too early. You want to let the season level out. How long does that take? When do you start looking at the season and start thinking that the numbers that you see on your computer monitor really represent reality as it is?
1: Um, I look at the ratios. And once the once the ERA and the whip and the batting average top to bottom seems to match what a typical end-of-the-season standings look like, and it usually takes somewhere between six and eight weeks for that to stabilize. So uh, around the two-month mark, mark, I feel a little bit comfortable gauging where I am within categories and that sort of thing. Now, of course, people make trades and get injuries, so it's, it's not going to stay that way necessarily. But as far as, okay, I can pick up some points and steals or, or this or that, I understand now what you the point you made is is excellent in in that a lot of people especially in the high stakes uh i don't want to use the word gimmick but 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 play to do really well in one category and not do so well in another so it does help to know are three teams just going all out with steel so it, 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 it i can't compete with them but dang it doesn't take much to get to the fourth best team in steel so with just a little bit of effort I can, I'm not going to overtake them and get the total points, but I can get a few more points. So I think it does matter in that vein, some of the singular categories. Or vice versa, I, I'm dumping steals, but geez, I didn't realize, so were three other teams. So if I just pick up one steals guy, and even if I use them half the time, that's going to give me enough to get me four points in the category. So I think along those lines, I, I think it is, you know, so when you said standings, I guess I should have realized. You know, yeah, you meant you know categories and standings. Definitely see where you are within the categories as far as the management goes.
0: I think that's the key thing is that it's where you stand in the categories, and I think more and more people are starting to understand that where you are overall is one thing, and and uh, it's important not to overreact to that because uh, you know it, it, even now in Tell Wars AL where I'm playing. Uh, I, I've been as high as first place in my league and low as 11th in the same week. And it's because I'm bouncing up and down so quickly in wins and so quickly in home runs, where you know you get two or three home runs in a night and you jump literally eight or nine points because everybody's stuck on around seven or so. And all of a sudden you're up at 11 and, and uh, you're sitting pretty on top of the pile. And then the next night you go, uh, you know, no home runs and everybody else catches up. So there's still a tremendous amount of volatility in the numbers. And it's for that reason I think you're right to say don't worry about it too much. I like like keeping track anyway. Another idea you had in the article Todd was it's important to monitor transactions even at this early stage. And by that did you mean Major League Baseball transactions, the actual team activities or transactions in your league or both?
1: Uh, I think in the article I specifically was talking about league, but you know, Major League, you know, team transactions are, are integral as well. Um especially because of uh, a guy gets called up over the weekend and maybe didn't cuz well get jumping <laughs> I'm A couple thoughts in my head. I'm jumping ahead to one without explaining it. But um, if a guy gets called up over the weekend and doesn't get a lot of at bats, when you sort your website, your commissioner service, by at bats or innings, he may not float to the top if he just got called up. He may not have any, but he may be legal because he's on the major league roster. So, especially towards the end of the week, especially because a lot of these guys play on Sunday. So, when you sit down and do your fab, Maybe the guy hasn't played yet, and he would have gotten four plate appearances or five, and, and actually shown up. But uh, you know, the, the thought I had jumping ahead was, you know, I think it's important. Well, one of the one of the things that everybody does is sort by at bats, or sort by Ks for pitchers or innings, to bring the guys that are playing a lot up to the top. And what that does is you sometimes miss out if a guy was dropped prematurely by an owner. he has got you know he's got Pollock and Blackman, or something like that. so he, he can't afford to keep uh, and now an he couldn't afford to keep Mazara on his reserve. He needed someone that was playing a couple weeks ago. So if you look at the previous week's releases, their drops, you have a feel if someone had to prematurely drop a good player, and someone may miss him. Somebody, if their father doing is looking for the guys that have played recently, they may have missed a couple of weeks ago that Mazzara was available in your league. And not only can sometimes you get a little bit cheaper, but you know you can get him. So I think my I mean, the main point was, as you're looking to see who wins who that week, which we all do in Fab, take a look to see who has dropped and make a note if a uh, if a player you, you know that you liked or can help your team down the road and you can afford to put him on your reserve grab them.
0: A lot of this, of course, depends on whether or not your league rules allow you to stockpile guys on reserve. uh, I joined a league, as a matter of fact, you and I are sharing this team in a a bit of a fashion in this new league with a bunch of crazy rules about how many guys you can reserve. There's only a two-man DL, even if you've got five guys on the DL. That kind of league seems to scream out, you know, watch out for guys who are forced to dump guys out of their reserve or uh, off their active roster because they literally don't have any room for the guy because their two dL spots are already taken up. So the rules of when when are you forced to make an action and when are you what are you allowed to do in uh, stockpiling players both play into this an awful lot. Uh, in your own Tot wars National League league, you went very aggressively after Jeremy Hazelbaker of St. Louis. I think you bid one hundred and seventy seven dollars. that's out of a thousand. so, that's an equivalent of about an $18 bid in a $100 budget. Uh, how much of that bid was necessity and how much of it was optimism that Jeremy Hazelbaker is the real deal and can contribute?
1: See, I'm, at, I'm actually glad you kind of said the 18% part because I'm not exactly sure how to you know, explain this or if I'm right or wrong or, or all wet. I'll get to that in a second. But as far as Hazelbaker, uh, Tutworth has the rule where if you don't do well the year before, you lose some fab, so I was well below the thousand dollar limit, having finished near the bottom last year. So basically, that puts me out of running for those that are going to hoard for the deadline. And I, th- I actually didn't mind it because it forces almost it forces me, but it, it it's a lot easier to be more aggressive early. And Hazel Baker was part part, you know, I, I the pedigree wasn't too bad. Part I I had lost A J Pollock, and St Louis is a team that. They find a way to get good guys in the lineup. They've got a lot of moving parts right now. If you are Brandon Moss or Matt Adams' owner, you're not particularly happy. But they, and I'm not saying Hazelmaker, Hazel Hazelmaker. Hazel, Hazel I'm thinking of Bad News Bears. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying he's going to be a star player, but I do think he's got the skills enough to contribute. And in an only league, you know, playing two uh, two, two times a week with a pinch hit here and there, pinch hit attempt here and there, is helpful. And there's just not a lot else out there. So, yeah, it was, it was a I want this guy grab. It was definitely something to that. On the other hand, I don't think that I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to be talking to you in September about how Jeremy Hazelbaker is the key to my winning. If I'm winning, it's with him and not because of him. And hopefully we are having that conversation. But I'm not, I don't think, you know, I don't I don't see a 12 home or 20 steel guy. You know, that's going to be the, the difference maker.
0: Just to quickly touch on this whole idea of the Tout Wars changing from the $100 fab budget to the $1,000 fab budget, and on its face, it seems pretty obvious. Just multiply by ten, and now you can bid dimes, basically, where before you had to bid dollars. Uh, Bidding, uh, you know, uh, $171 out of a thousand is exactly the same as bidding $17.10 out of a hundred, and and yet it seemed like the players in the league, some of them, were a little reluctant to move up in the in the scale. I grabbed a guy. Uh, Sean Manea, who I really like. I I bid way more than I needed to, uh, but I got him for around $200, which was the equivalent of a $20 bid. And I I saw some of the uh, websites and blogs and what have you that monitor the free agent spending in our leagues, uh, including your guys, as a matter of fact. And there was some discussion about whether I had overbid or not. And I thought, had I bid $20 in a $100 fab budget nobody would have even said anything it wouldn't have been a noteworthy event but i bid 200 which sounds like a lot but it's still the t- equivalent of 20 dollars in a hundred dollar league
1: yeah well here's here's my what i was referring to when you said the 18 percent of hazel baker the this difference is and this argument and here's where i'm sort of i mean maybe the argument's not right because in tout wars you're allowed zero dollar bids but when you bid uh you know 20 percent of your budget and a hundred dollar budget, you know, to to do the math, you have eighty one dollar bids left. But when you do that in a thousand dollar budget, you have eight hundred one dollar bids left. So, th- to me, there's they're, they're not exactly the same. Uh, you know, it, it's it's probably easier to think about if you go the extreme and say someone wants to go all in on a guy, so uh, you know, it, it, they want to leave themselves a little bit of money left, ninety dollars. Uh, on a guy and try to get him if you bid nine hundred dollars on a guy and try to get him, when you bid that, but you're probably going to be able to get a lot more lesser players. So again, the whole zero dollar bid and tout kind of I don't know, not destroys the argument, but definitely less wrong when they do the twenty percent thing. I just think that you do sort of need to think there is a little bit more to it than that, and I think. What it means is I think you can go even more aggressive, which I had no issues with the with the Mazar bid on your part. And I think a lot of that has to do with I'm kind of used to this $1,000 threshold from the NFPC. Matter of fact, you know, without getting into too many gory details, uh, I was sort of the, the impetus for this rule change. Um, I didn't like the $0. I think when you have $1,000, you don't need the safety net of being able to bid zero. I think you should be able to manage your money so that the minimum bid should have been a dollar. But... I wasn't at all upset to see it go to a thousand.
0: Yeah, and when it comes to zero versus one, I don't. It's kind of a difference without a distinction. I think, uh, you know, if you're obliged, you oblige a guy to bid a buck, and eat instead of zero, that's like a thousand bids basically. Certainly, nobody's going to make that many bids. I'm. I was glad to hear you say though that the presence of $0 bids makes uh, aggressiveness even more of a, of a sound policy. Because if you count the number of transactions you're typically going to do in a year, there's going to be one, I think maybe two fairly big ones where guys are coming over changing leagues, that kind of thing. Then you have to have a bit of a horde ready to, to go for that. Then you're going to have one f- sort of or two fairly significant moves, and then you're going to have a bunch of small little replacement level moves for t- short term injuries, that kind of thing. I don't think you need all your thousand dollars spread out over the whole entire year. I just, I never have, even at a hundred dollars, I never felt that way because I went back and reviewed my own bidding and bidding by other guys over the last three years in these single league tout formats, and most of the bids are zero or a dollar. And, and I, you know, if you've got a thousand dollars, you've got essentially an unlimited stock of those.
1: Yeah, now what you're I think what you're talking about is there are some bids where you just you really don't care who you get. You know, you just want one of these seven guys that are playing once or twice a week. You really can't, you know, you really can't use analytics to figure out which one's better. So just give me one of them. And if all I want is one of them, and I don't think they're all going to be drafted, why pay anything? You know, pay the minimum bid, one dollar in labor and zero dollars in tout. So you'll have a string of, you know, seven zero dollar bids just to fill that spot until your guy comes. You know. Till that guy comes. If I lost Charlie Blackman in a really deep league, I would have just, you know, seven outfielders that are getting at bats, I don't care which one it is, and, and give me him, and I'm, you know, saving my fab for a move where there is someone I want to pay a little bit of money for.
0: In the single league leagues, I think there's there's a good argument that you made about the league crossers, and you, you really want to be ready for that activity to take place, especially the ones right at the deadline, because you get a couple of months of Potentially, really um, game-breaking potential if somebody with a with a you know a great track record is coming across. Uh, typically, I I don't like waiting that long uh, to find out and and missing out on the stats that I could have had during the year because I'm hoarding my money for the possibility of that happening later in the year. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from. Rotowire from Masters Ball, ESPN. Uh, and Todd, uh, we've talked about how soon it is before your standings level is actionable or before you really not need to start thinking about where you are in the standings. I'd like to talk also about individual players. And just for example, on Sunday, Corey Kluber of the Indians went to 0-3 with a six-inning, six-run, 10-base runner stinker against the Mets. He also had a throwing error, by the way. Uh, Kluber was really a touts darling this offseason a lot of people thought this was going to be the bounce back candidate of the year but so far if there's been a bounce it's been a dead cat bounce what do you make of Corey Kluber and how soon do we have to really start worrying here
1: I don't know uh, having, I was watching that game because Kluber was one of my DFS players of the day. Roger Davis lost two balls in the sun. There was another pop-up I think it was a fall pop-up that was missed by the catcher um, and these, these run, these, these are not errors in baseball, <laughs> even though I think there should be a team error, uh, where the pitcher did his job. He induced a, a, catchable fly ball, but there was a rare sunny day in Cleveland and Rajai Davis couldn't see it. So that, that outing wasn't nearly as bad as it may have looked. Of course, you know, the runs count to go on your ERA. Uh, but I look at those strikeouts and I look at the walks and Klooba's peripherals are just fine. Um, our Fred, uh, our friend, Dave Potts tweeted out during the outing that he's proclaiming this national make a, you know, make a, make a, make a, buy low bid on Corey Kluber day. And I, you know, I told, I I tweeted back, I I did, but the bid got lost in the sun. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not all, all that concerned about Kluber. He's an interesting guy in that even when he pitches well, his, his BABIP's been a little bit high. And I think a lot of us thought and still do that, with Lindor, Francisco Lindor, and and even your Juan Uribe is not bad. That the the defense has improved in Cleveland over the past year and a half, and expected that to 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 level off as well. So if if I'm in a trading league and Kluber's owner is a little bit nervous, I'm all over it, and I'm not benching him. If if I'm in a non-trading league, he's gonna. I think he's gonna be fine.
0: How many more bad outings would it take for you to change that view, though?
1: Well, to me, he doesn't have. A, I mean, it's the the walk and strikeouts are fine. So I think, you know, to me, the definition of, of a bad outing is when he's walking a ton of guys and not, stri- not striking anybody out, and I haven't seen that yet. So I don't, I mean, how many would it take? I don't think it's going to happen, but, you know, it, you know, I think there may be some other, you know, uh, an Adam Wainwright, there, there, there might be some other, although his never really had a, a huge strikeout total to be expected. But if, if I'm expecting really good strikeout to walk numbers from a guy, it, it, after two or three outings, I may be concerned, and I'm probably actually concerned about injury more than anything else because it, it's rare for a, a guy with, you know in that class just to, to suddenly lose it. Although there is one, uh, and uh, um, we may talk about it a little bit later, in, in Dallas Keuchel, who I had some yellow flags coming into the season. So he's sort of on my watch list, and not I'm not in the Dallas Keuchel camp that some people are.
0: Nolan Arenado of Colorado was a top pick in many experts drafts I'm sure in league drafts everywhere and he's been worth every bit of it he has six home runs as we speak uh, one short of surprising teammate Trevor Story in that regard he's batting 280 Arenado is he's got 16 RBIs 14 runs scored I think he's leading the majors in RBI we thought the sky was the limit for Nolan Arenado coming into the year but how high is the sky for Nolan Arenado do you think?
1: Wow. I mean, he was a guy. I, I liked him. Uh, I, talk, uh, I talked about him on a RotoWire piece early in the season where I wasn't sure if he was going to be able to sustain the power numbers. And I definitely didn't think he was going to be able to drive in the 130 runs that he drove in the previous season just because he had such a, an outlier uh, batting average on balls. I'm sorry, just batting average with runners on base. Um, the home run per fly ball compared to his fly ball rate. I haven't looked at it in depth yet, and I think it's even still still a little bit too early. But he, I was tempering my power just because he hit too many well, line drives and ground balls, and and I didn't think he can st- sustain the home run for fly ball. So I'm not convinced. Not so much not so convinced. Um, I, you know, are we going to see another 40 type home run season? I'm not sure yet. It just may have been a nice streak where. The home run for fly ball is pretty high. I, the sky is the limit if he can loft more balls. I, I'm not so sure that that is going to be his 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 M.O. going forward. I think mean, he's still a 30 homer guy. Whether he's a 40 guy, I'm still to me anyway. The jury's still out. But at that position in that park, even though as you know he, he does a lot of damage on the road as well, which is a good thing. he's he's, he's an elite he's an elite player. I'm still behind Josh Donaldson in my mind, but um don't think he's going to you know become that top 5 hitter that some people top 5 you know overall player that some people may have in in car in, in mind
0: in San Francisco a catcher Trevor Brown in his first 5 games had 3 home runs and given how much they like to play Buster Posey at first base how much do you like uh Trevor Brown as a catcher option in either especially in mixed leagues I think it's a pretty good play in in a National League only but uh, in mixed leagues do you think Trevor Brown's worth picking up
1: um, you know, the catcher pool is so, so shallow that I, I, I looked into it. But oddly, that since since Posey's been back, uh, I think they want to give Brandon Belt the the opportunity to hit left-handers, and that's why uh, Posey was playing some first base. And at the time, it was either Hector Sanchez or Andrew Susak would be the, the catcher, now Trevor Brown. So I kind of thought about that, but th- it seems though they want Belt to play first, and keep in mind, Susak was supposed to take the job, a little bit injured, he's down on the farm, he's not hitting particularly well, so it's not you know, an imminent call-up, but I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, when Brown comes, you know, levels off, if he hasn't already, that Susak gets the ring, gets the call-up, so I, I and I guess this all came from, because I have Brown in an, in an NL-only league, and, and I think my, whoever, my catcher, I now have two Similarly, you know, backup catchers and which one do I want to play? So I was kind of looking to see which one I thought might play more. And it's all got to play Brown because, like you said, Posey plays first. We haven't played a lot of first. Uh, Belt's playing against lefties. So at least short term, nice nice thought, but it's just not coming to fruition.
0: All right. So Trevor Brown, uh, is he worth a pickup or not?
1: Um, anybody in NL only, anybody who's playing even once or twice a week is worth a pickup, but. He's not, to me, he's not worth a pickup over, I don't know, a Tyler Flowers or, 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 or a guy that's playing a little bit more. Um, so, I mean, I, I've always thought that having Hector Sanchez or Andrew Susak as a $1 catcher was was a good idea. But um, I, to me, he's he's not a, he's a top 24 NL only catcher, but I, 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 I'm not as optimistic that you're going to really get a, a The boost that at least, you know, theoretically, I mean, it's a great thought, but it just, to me, it's just not, it's just not happening. At least maybe Belt needs to not hit lefties and they'll start doing a little bit more.
0: We talked about Corey Kluber and his struggles. Chris Archer's third in, uh, in MLB in strikeouts, but he looks barely roster worthy. If you look at his ERA, it's touching six. He's given up five home runs already. That's a big part of that. But his whip is pretty close to two. Again, this is all very early stuff, but what do we make of Chris Archer's season so far?
1: You see, I yeah, Archer was a guy I never, I didn't get a lot of, well, I didn't get any of, because uh, to borrow to borrow our friend Jeff Erickson's expression, he had a lot of helium. He was jumping way up in, in in auctions and in drafts both, and I understand betting on the come, but there were it's in a tier of pitches where there were just a lot. I mean, I'll take you know. He was going around Kluber, and I would prefer Kluber than Chris Archer. So I didn't get a whole lot of Chris Archer. So it's coming from, I'm coming from the angle where I probably don't have, to, I don't have to worry about what's going on. So I haven't looked to see what I, why I think what's happening is happening. I, I, mean, I did see that his the first dominating performance where he was, you know, both wild and dominant at the same time, which is always an interesting combination. Uh, he hasn't to me shown. The consistency of the control to, to to be drafted where he was drafted. So you can't take him out of your lineup because he's he has Tampa Bay as a backdrop. He has one of the best. It's the, a, it's the AL, but it's still one of the best pitching uh, venues in the league. So he's not a guy that you're going to sit, but he might be a guy that I might look to trade if he has another bad outing or two. And I know you're selling low, but if somebody still has that mad, you know, still... Values him what I what I believe to be too high, then you can you might be able to get a more consistent pitcher in return for him. But uh, home runs, you know, as you know, are weird they come in they, they you know they come in clusters and they're not all bad luck. There's some there's some bad pitching involved there as well. But anytime I see five homers this early, I don't get overly concerned about it because it was probably you know a three homer game mixed in there and that kind of really inflated the numbers and I think by the end of the season, Archer's going to be just fine. But my my opinion of just fine is probably a little bit lower than somebody else's.
0: Before I forget, I've asked other guest experts on the podcast. But is Vincent Velasquez of the Phillies for real? Do you think?
1: Uh, well, he'll 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 ask you to say Vince and not Vincent. I got scolded myself for uh, for that. Apparently, uh, apparently he prefers Vince. Um, again, I guess it depends where you what, what's for real. I. I, I Another guy that got, that went really really high towards the end of drafts, as far as relative to where he, you know, the numbers said he should go. I think he's for real, and I also think he pitches for a pretty uh, poor team, and that's going to probably temper his innings. So I think that we're you know we're looking at 150, 160 innings max. We're not looking at 180, 190, 200 innings. So if you keep that in mind, um, then I think we're going to be the peripherals are, are really really good. And Philadelphia is one of those interesting parks in that the uh, it's not as it, it's a home, it's a hitting park as far as homers go but it's it's fairly neutral for runs so that stigma about playing a pitcher in Philadelphia I try to get over that something that sort of DFS has kind of taught me well, I think he's for real I don't think he's gonna strike out 16 guys that a walk every single game but I don't think anybody does but I do think people don't pay enough attention to the potential that we're only looking at 150, 160 innings out of him, which I think is fine because you didn't pay for 200, but somehow we sort of, in the middle of the season, kind of get greedy and expect 200, <laughs> you know, and, and, and kind of forgetting that, you know, we didn't pay for it, so um, just be, be prepared to deal with it towards the end of the season.
0: Staying in Philadelphia, Aaron Nola, boy, he looks good, by the way. Uh, he has an ERA north of 5.5 as well, but his other numbers are really good, including a 105 whip. You've said in the past that you you think whip is more important than ERA and actually is the, is the critical number to look at out of the two of them. So would you make Aaron Nola a buy low candidate if someone in the league is perturbed by his 5.5 ERA?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'm... I'm, I'm it's more of a, a skills guy, and to me, the ERA has more uh, basal skill level than than an ERA does, or sorry, whipped up strikeout guy to begin with. So I, I don't get concerned that I don't see the, the 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 whiffing inning that you see out of Velasquez and and some of these other guys. He's more of a not so much touch and feel, but you know he's good strikeout rate, not great, and he's the good control. So yeah, that's what, the, what I look at from Nolan. Actually, something I've I've been talking a little bit about. It's a good Good thing to bring up when we're talking about nola and velasquez and i kind of hinted that philadelphia is not a pretty good not a good team um the good pitchers on the lesser teams are going to win games in the national league just because there's so many you know lower you know teams that aren't looking for this year they're playing for next year so the good pitchers on the lesser teams i don't think they're not going to be 20 game winners but I think they're going to win more games than if the you know top to bottom of the league was, was was more balanced. So guys like Velasquez and Nola, you know I'm I'm not as concerned. I'm not avoiding them because they're not going to get wins. They're going to have enough outings against Milwaukee and Cincinnati and and some of the other San Diego and some of the teams like that that they're going to get their share of wins.
0: Now, by the same token, Rick Porcello of Boston has a whip under one. He struck out 15 and walked only two, but his ERA is also over five. And I wonder, I know you've talked about this before, is there a issue between the stretch and the windup with Rick Porcello or maybe any of these other guys who have pretty decent whips but pretty high ERAs?
1: Uh, it's, I think it's a little bit early to, to tell that. Porcello, having seen him a couple times, I don't want to say he's a new pitcher, but he's definitely, he's, he's, he's honed his repertoire uh, in the, in the past, towards the end of last season and into this season. He's a little bit more of a strikeout pitcher, but he's still, even for a, a guy that keeps the ball down, he's still prone to the, the fat one down the middle and then the home run. And I, he gave up a couple of costly home runs, and they came with men on base, which means he was pitching out of the out of the stretch so perhaps that has something to do with it i don't know but uh yeah any any time that an era is inflated because of a high home run game or you know a pair of two home run games or something i don't get terribly concerned about that because i think you know the home runs will level off after a while and and, and the era should come down Now i mean it's still rick barcello we're talking about here so it's how much of the new the new dominance to, do we actually buy into, and be, we, we with with uh, with Christian Vasquez Vasquez behind the plate, uh, I'm I'm gonna give him a little bit more rope if I'm in the in an AL only league. To me, he's still not a mixed pitcher, but uh, I think there's some there's some hope with uh, with Vasquez, who's just a, a wonderful defensive player, not just throwing but framing pitches and calling a game. Um, warned about this at the First Pitch Forum Tour if you are into Blake Swihart that it wouldn't be long before I didn't think Swihart would be sent down but I, I was warning against you know 80% or 70% playing time like some people were thinking about but um, yeah Purcell is tough because I get to see him so it's a—it's how do we separate the numbers from some of the junk that we've seen him throw up there and you know it's anecdotal but once you know a couple times he, he hangs that the, the meatball whether it's a sinker that it doesn't sink or, or just a fastball that doesn't move gets the ball up in the zone a little bit too much and doesn't seem to get away with it
0: this is an interesting point I think this this idea of pit- pitchers who can or can't pitch from the stretch you, you acknowledge or you believe that there is such a thing that there are some pitchers who are better at pitching from the stretch than others
1: yeah now the 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 skills bore this out if you look at the strikeout rate and the walk rate of, you know, no no, no stat services actually uh, track windup versus stretch. You sort of have to extrapolate it from men on base and then just kind of leave relievers out because you don't know what they're going to do and then leave out men on third and second and third and bases loaded because you don't know which starter uh, goes from the windup and which goes from the stretch in that scenario. But if you sort of get the actionable data that you trust Skills from the windup are better than from the stretch, and that includes a better batting average and balls in play. And it's all—we're not talking about a pitcher too. We're talking about the league. So I think that is real. Um, Not every pitcher uh, has the same delta as as the the league average. So if a pitcher is on average, you know, better—not on average—but if he's if he's better from the stretch than the average pitcher, I think that might be a Sort of an explanation why he might pitch his expected ERA, because the expected ERA, the, those formulas are all based on the global league averages, and vice versa. If he, if a pitcher always seems to do worse than his expected ERA, I found that on occasion, not on occasion, I found several instances where his work out of the stretch is 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 worse than league average. So, it's a it's a backward looking stat uh, to sort of help. Explain projections going into the season, you know, why a guy might, you know, how much do you want to regress his actual ERA that you're projecting towards his expected ERA in season, to me, I don't know, I, I think it's actionable in that if you got a home plate umpire in DFS that's known to, you know, have a, a short strike zone or a small strike zone and you're already happy because the pitcher isn't going to walk as many, you should be extra happy because not only is he not going to walk anybody, he's going to be working on the windup that much more. So, to me, those pitchers get a little bit of a bump on uh, my DFS uh, ranking if the, if a, if a home plate umpire that is known to call uh, more strikes is behind the plate,
0: that stands to reason. and uh, that that's something about whip and the stretch that I think is important to to remember is that it's kind of a compounding thing that a guy who doesn't give up hits and walks means he gets to pitch more often from the windup and less often from the stretch, which means he's going to maintain his good whip and uh, theoretically is good BABIP and so forth. So a guy who has a good whip tends to have a good whip, I guess is what it comes down to, which t- now that I say it doesn't sound like that tremendous of an insight, but I think possibly it's because the, the wind-up and stretch issue comes into play in ways that maybe we haven't quite teased out. And when I was looking into it, uh, I did run into that same problem. Nobody ever says whether he's pitching from the stretch or not, and it seems like a fairly fundamental thing that they ought to start mentioning, you know, as far as figuring out uh, pitcher splits because some guys do pitch from the stretch with a runner on third, second and third, or bases loaded. Other guys don't, and, it's, and you either have to leave them out or split the difference. I don't know. It's a little bit tough to tell. I looked at Porcello last year, and his uh, his home runs per nine was the same from the stretch and from the windup. His strikeouts were very close to the same. His walks were pretty close to the same. I don't think that there's an issue here, but I do believe that there's an issue for a lot of pitchers. Uh, before we leave this topic, Todd, uh, Rich Hill of Oakland, how about him? Uh, 36 years old. He's solidly in the top 10 of dominance ratio, 13.2 strikeouts per nine. His strikeout percentage, 31% of batters faced. The career rates are way below that. His ERA, however, over four, his whip's near 170. This is just these are crazy numbers. He's got a 485 Babip. His career rate is about 295. So we should expect his Babip to regress downwards, which means we should expect his ERA and whip to improve. But he did turn 36 during spring training, and he has absolutely no record of these these kind of skills. So I guess my question with all of this is: Is it possible Rich Hill is doing this for real?
1: Yeah. Now uh, you can take can take this in a couple different directions. I'll I'll take it in the uh, in the in the way that you probably want me to. Then I'm going to say something that might be uh, well. You'll ask me for an explanation. I'm sure. Um, remember towards the end of last year, he had that incredible run with the Red Sox in, the, in, in September, Yeah. and he showed similar peripherals. He said he's 36. Uh, it's kind of weird. He, he's 36, but he, it's almost as if he's a new guy that hasn't been around because he has a completely different repertoire working off the fastball and primarily his improved curveball. Um, I always thought, or I still do think that he's getting a a bit of the, you know, not have a book on him, or at least on this Rich Hill sort of guy. And it may even be even more towards his favor in that they think they do, but it's not the same guy. So they don't have the book. Not only do they have to, you know, get a new book on him, they have to, you know, get out of their head that the old book is the book. I think once, you know, he's a two pitch pitcher. And I mean, once team see him a little bit more and get more used to the the break on the curveball and how we use how he uses one off of each other. I think the league will catch up to him. So he's kind of got regression working both directions. As you mentioned the the hit rate will fall regardless, but I think the peripherals will 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 work lessen as well and they'll probably settle at the same place. Um you know where that is. I you know <laughs> just just don't know. Um but uh, you know, here's the part that that that's kind of curious. With a guy like Rich Hill in today's game, I actually don't care where where he lands because the cost to find out is so cheap that it's worth to, it's it's worth to try, especially in AL-only leagues with with reserve lists, and even in mixed, because he pitches in Oakland. So you have that backdrop of being able to stream him. If you can afford, you know, kind of circling back to our conversation earlier, if you can afford to stash him on your reserve roster. I don't I don't I'm not I'm not bothered by the fact that I can't, you know, put a landing place for him because the cost to find out where it is is so small to me that it, it's worth trying.
0: I I understand what you're saying but the uh, cost of maintaining a starter in whom you're not fully confident could be sort of a uh two inning 13 run disaster which can affect your numbers really badly almost for the whole year and is that something that you'd look at it and you say it's such a long shot that I don't mind that maybe he has a run of, of some starts that I have him on my roster but they're and they're not good but they're not going to kill me kind of cost
1: I think his peripherals I don't I don't think we're going to fall to that range uh, and again we we do have the the parachute of Oco Coliseum that if you know if he's if he's got a a two start week in Yankee Stadium in Fenway Park or Toronto and in a place like that I might sit him for that week and you know again this goes this goes back to the, the the league rules nowadays reserve list and back in the day we couldn't do this and that my my answer would be I'm not touching him because of this risk but because in some leagues I can afford to move him up and down and when he's playing against you know the rangers who who aren't clicking on all gears and seattle's offense isn't clicking at home you know i'm, I'm more than you know, I, I don't i think the chance of a disaster like that are no more than with any other pitcher that you're putting in your lineup um in in, in a mixed league now league like the NFBC, where the dl and the reserves overlap you know the best laid plan so to speak you know this time of the year we got three or four guys already on injury reserve doesn't leave your room to, to see what Rich Hill does. Uh, there's some starting pitchers who I think you just have to play regardless. I think Well, Kluber's sort of an extreme. I think a guy like maybe Jeff Samarge is an example of a guy where I've heard people say they want to see some good outings before they put him in there. For me, that's not a good plan. Uh, but Hill, again, because the, the cost is so cheap, I don't mind losing a bad outing or two because I didn't pay significant money for a, a year's worth of great stats. Th- those that I do get if Hill turns out to be good, I'm still getting a positive return on my investment. Whereas if I sit Samarja and I need to see two or three really good outings, well I have an expectation for Jeff Samarja. And if I miss those two or three good outings before I put him in there, well I'm gonna get the expectation but but without those three good outings. So to me, it's it's what you paid, and yeah, I'm going to lose a, if I put Hill on the bench until he shows me, until I have a better idea where that baseline is, I'm still going to get enough good starts to make it worthwhile, uh, and I'm not as upset that I may have lost a good one or two.
0: I'd like to follow up on a point you made about reserve lists and how they have really um, reduce the amount of risk that we're obliged to manage as fantasy owners, and I, I I don't know if how you feel about this, but to me it seems to be a detriment to the game. That when when I started playing, and I know I don't want to sound like the the old geezer who who says that you know cars in the 1970s were better than cars today or anything like like my dad, but. I think that back when I started, there was no such thing as a reserve list. You just had your team and you had a DL. If a guy was on the DL or if he was sent to the minors, you could put him on a minor league uh, roster. But you couldn't just keep a perfectly active player on a reserve list and keep him away from everybody else and, uh, and all this streaming and stuff like that. I understand the argument that says, hey, it gives you options during the week to start and and not start certain guys or whatever, but doesn't it seem also that we're just uh, removing the the obligation to make good roster choices in the first place by allowing all these outs and and, uh, and uh, parachutes, as you called them?
1: Absolutely. You're a man after my own heart. I've been saying this and writing this for years, and, and I understand why tout wars and labor have to go down this route because... I, I mean, granted, we're also, especially in Tout trying to find some nuances to change the game, but I also understand you need to make it somewhat relatable for the audience, and most leagues out there have reserve lists. Absolutely, because to me, it, it goes back to what I feel are sort of the fundamental tenets of this this, this hobby, which we love, and that's, you know, player evaluation, converting that that, that, that expectation to a ranking or, or, or a value, if you will, and then coming up with a draft strategy to put as much of that expectation that potential on your team and to me you know own it if you you know if if you think that uh, you know Rich Hill ha- was gonna have a great year and you believed in his numbers from last year he's on your team and if he stinks your team stinks uh, you know you don't get to put him on reserve and find out if you think that Johnny Cueto was gonna you know really take the, to to AT&T Park like I did and still do you know uh, he's on the team and if it ended up was wrong then you know you did a poor job of analysis and evaluation you should pay for it uh i absolutely think you know i think going from four by four to five by five can be sort of uh, you know not just going from al and only to to mix and then reserve i think that adds an element of safety because you know you know our, our you know our, our friend Ron made a, made a living, built a website off of the Lima plan, which worked, you know, was a way to combat the riskiness of pitchers by going off to those high-skill relievers. Now that strikeouts count in five-by-five, well, there's other ways to do the Lima plan, but the point being, you know, you can you can just bully up strikeouts and at the same time wins and draft some saves and do well in three of the five categories and not worry about ratios in the ERA, just kind of let them fall where they may. And that's not evaluating pitching and, and getting the pitchers that you think. That's just, you know, bullying up strikeouts and using two start weeks because the guys got two starts to get those extra strikeouts. So the, people call that strategy i think in skill to me it's you know common sense all these midweek moves and daily roster moves everybody calls them strategy i think they're common sense the guy's got two starts this week put him in there that's not strategy that's that's uh it's common sense so yeah i i'd like i, I hearken back and i actually play in one league my I, my home league is that way and it's purposely i purposely chose that uh, you know when i was looking for home leagues uh, you know, local Boston leagues to, to play in. I, I tried to find one that used as close to old school rules as possible. So I do still have that that, that taste, that feel. And, um, and I, I, it lends itself to clever trades because how do you get that stinky guy off your roster? Well, you make a an, an odd player deal, a two for one or three for two, where the guy you deal him to can then drop him because he doesn't need him on his roster. So I think it, it makes for some interesting uh, dynamics that I, you know, I miss in the, in, and cause most of my leagues are industry or, or non-trading.
0: Yeah. And, and so, something else I was in a league for a very long time. My home league was an AL only. And, and again, when I started, it was very old school rules. There was no reserve list. There still isn't, but, but another way that, uh, that the requirement to make decisions is diluted or gotten rid of is, and this, there was, People who were, who were in charge of the league or had an out, outsized say in how the league operated, they didn't. They weren't good at drafting, is what it boiled down to. Mm-hmm. They they found it hard to make decisions about which guys to keep, and so a lot of us, anyways, wanted to reduce the amount of keepers because that's another way of of eliminating mm-hmm. the need to make decisions. But then they instituted these massive minor league f- systems where we started off. I think we had two or three. Now I think that league is up to 12 or 14 or even 10, something like that. And so there's 12 teams in the league. There's 10 minor leaguers. That's 120 of the best prospects are out of the picture. And that's my another problem I have with reserve, le- with reserve lists in leagues, especially in deep leagues like a, a single league format, and that is, if I lose a guy to injury, and I'm looking around in the free agent pool, there's nothing there. And it's not because they're all playing for somebody else; it's because they're sitting on a bench somewhere else when I could be when I could use them. And I, I think that sucks too.
1: Yeah, you know, as we talked about in the past, I do the tut wars and the labor transactions on, on Masters Ball, and I called several times last year where I would make the note when I <coughs> excuse me talk about my team in that, guys, I'm, I'm not being lazy here replacing this injured corner. I've gone to the reserve list for the past three weeks, and there's simply no corner-eligible players out, out there available. Okay, granted, I could have made a trade for one, but there was no one on Fab that, I mean, it wasn't, you know, like I just ignored it. <laughs> there were no corners for three straight weeks in an NL only league that even had one at bat, you know, expecting one at bat a week. So you're right. And, uh, and you know, the, some leagues have... have, have Combated that with you know, shortening reserve lists or to that effect, but it's still yeah it's uh, let the let the hobby be player evaluation and draft dynamics and and less about you know in, even my Hazel Baker move as I kind of mentioned before a lot of that was why not I don't know if he's going to do well the you know it's it's Fab to me Fab is less of an asset than it would be to somebody else who knows maybe I get lucky. You know what, if I win because I got lucky, I'm going to be happy. But I don't know. uh, You know, I'd rather win because I was the best manager and did the best evaluation.
0: Well said. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David with Todd Zola from Masters Ball. And from RotoWire and from ESPN. And uh, Todd, in your RotoWire column a while back, you talked about the importance of pitching in DFS cash games, the 50 50s and double ups. And you said the way to choose your pitcher is the rule of 13. So, what is the rule of 13? How does it work? And why does it work?
1: Yeah, this isn't, uh, this is kind of a rule of thumb. Uh, It's not one of those E equals MC squared type hypotheses that you can prove but what I've found is sort of a quick and dirty when you're putting together, and this specifically for cash lineups, is that if you can reasonably expect your pitcher to get a total of 18 strikeouts plus innings, he makes a good cash play for that for that game. Uh, in cash, DFS cash play, you want to finish above usually half of the people in the league, and the points that you get from pitching, be, be, because pitchers are going to get strikeouts and they're going to throw innings, the, the, the floor of a pitcher is higher than a floor of a hitter. I mean, even your best hitters, your Trouts and, and Goldschmidt's, are going to go 0 for 4, 1 for 5 with a couple of Ks. So they, have, they may have a higher ceiling relative to their you know, the, the, the amount of, you know if they're averaging 5 points, they can get a 25-point night. Whereas a you know a 15 point pitcher isn't going to get a 75 point night, but he's much more likely to get those 15 fantasy points. So, a you want to get a good cash game pitcher, and, and 13 was just an empirical number that I found, and you know, and it it, it, it's, it matters because you get guys that that can go six innings with seven strikeouts, and you get guys maybe Sonny Gray goes seven innings with six with six strikeouts. And depending on the site, the points might not be exactly the same. But the point being, to me, it's just a, uh, uh, if you don't have the computer, you know, the, the, the huge program that tells you exactly what the players are going to do, if it's just kind of an eyeball method like a lot of people that play DFS for fun do, to me, you know, think yourself is you know, okay, Matt Harvey, how many innings are going to go? How many is going to strike out? If it's 13, he's in play for uh, for cash for me.
0: But, for tournament play, where you're trying to zig while, everybody else is zagging, the rules are different,
1: yeah, absolutely. and uh, this 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 kind of goes back to, and I understand, you know I was gonna say it goes back to that whole luck thing. I understand that there are ways to quantify being contrarian and and and, and quantify the the odds of not being uh, chalk and that you can improve your chances to win. But uh, as far as, you know, my way of thinking or, or, or what I'm good at, um, I'm, uh, I want my success in the DFS to have more to do with that I was correct as far as anticipating how the, the, the matchup would impact the players' performance that night than just picking a stack and drawing the seventh and eighth hitters in there in the stack in the hope that that team does go off. I mean, there's just some skill into uh, being able to identify teams in good spots, but you know how much skill is there and 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 really you know chasing the seventh and eighth hitter in their lineup or sixth and seventh hitter, including them with the with a stack and, and and actually having it happen in the way that DFS has scored, not so much scored as far as points, but you know how you are as a player is dollars and cents. and you minimum you know the money is won in these tournaments, and you know you hit a stack and you win a tournament and suddenly you're a really, really, really good. DFS player, and, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that your evaluation techniques are better than somebody who, you know, didn't win cash because they didn't, they didn't do that contrary route that got you to the top.
0: Well, in my ex- limited experience at DFS, and I think I've talked with you about this before, but I, I tried a few tournaments and I played one one time and I actually did pretty well. I had a couple of lucky stacks and they did pretty well and I still finished out of the money because they only paid down to, I don't know, 30 or 40 spots or whatever it was. Uh, it was a smaller tournament. And and uh, I looked at the guy who won and he, he was like, he had seven of the top 10 spots and, and probably 30 out of the top 60 or whatever. And it was clear that he had just, he had just bullied the whole system by putting in hundreds and hundreds of entries, and he had the winning stack too, including um, Steve Clevenger had two home runs I think and made made all the difference in that particular game. Mm-hmm. But who who has that kind of money? You know, I'm not I'm not going to spend money to put Steve Clevenger in a lineup in a million years. But if I was willing to invest five or $6,000 in putting in entries, then sure, what the hell. Uh, that's part of it I don't like. You included a list of the pitchers uh, that met the Rule of 13 for you, and it was no surprise Clayton Kershaw, Max Scherzer, were at the top of the list for how often they met it. In fact, all the better than 50% pitchers were elite guys that we know their names. Are there any top-name pitchers who aren't reliable Rule of 13 guys, or is the message here what it has always been, for cash games, get a top pitcher you know and trust.
1: I think that it's more of a, I don't want to say contextual or game-by-game or, or, or game basis, but I think that it goes back to the innings and if... Early in the season, are, are you know, from you know, Jose Fernandez may be an, an example. I'm not convinced that Miami is just going to let him go out, you know, throw seven great innings no matter how well he's doing. You know, if they if they happen to have a lead, I think they may take him out after six innings, and he, and he, you know, he may have 13, he may have six plus seven, but he may not have had that that fantastic outing. So I do think that you sort of have to think about the pitcher, and you know, Noah Syndergaard. Well, I don't know at this point, Syndergaard seems pretty safe. But, you know, Harvey's an example. Are they going to let him go really, really deep into games uh, until he shows that, you know, actually if his control gets better, he may be able to just go deep into games naturally? I think it's more, on the pitcher-by-pitcher basis, is there a reason why uh, the team may lift him a little early, especially early in the season where uh, you want to be able to, you know, bank those innings for later on? So it, it just works out. That you know, a good pitcher is a good pitcher. Uh, I think it, it, what I think what it may actually show there might be some lesser pitchers that their ERA may not r- jump out at you as a good cash game player, uh, and you do lose points for giving up runs, but um, it, it still has worked out correlation wise that the thirteens are pretty good numbers. Guys like I don't know Garrett Richards and Cole Hamels that are borderline aces. That can be a cash game play. Uh, I don't look at bang for the buck with those sort of guys. But on some slates, if the pitches just don't line up properly, your Cole Hamels, your Garrett Richards might be the top play of the night. And some people will say, well, just don't play cash that night if there's not a guy you trust. But I think I use the 13 to see if there is a guy that I do happen to trust that might not be obvious.
0: Talking about DFS, uh, you tweeted out on the weekend that you were going to be making a huge announcement yesterday, Monday, relating to DFS at MastersBall.com. Can you fill us in? What was the announcement?
1: The announcement was that starting uh, yesterday, the uh, Masters Ball will be uh, posting or providing uh, daily DFS projections. It's something I've done in the past for uh, some of the places I work for, which uh, aren't Aren't part of my responsibility this year, so I kind of it's kind of one of those, you know, I I think, I think it was in Vegas, just kind of uh, just kind of taking it easy for a moment and say, wait a minute, <laughs> I, c- I can do this for my own site. So uh, what I'm gonna what we started to do, it's gonna be free, free for a week, and it's just basically the anticipated points that, that according to my system that the uh, players are gonna get for all the major TFS sites and. Uh, starting next week, we'll make it a uh, a subscriber only uh, feature from, from my platinum subscribers, and it's still a work in progress. Am I you know am I going to actually give the the entire stat line or just give the amount of points per site? Am I going to pull in the salaries and do a bang for the buck? Am I going to give um, my strong plays of the day off of this? So it's it's a work in progress, but at, at least to begin with, there'll be the player and how many points I expect him to get on all the major sites that night or that afternoon.
0: You also tweeted recently a reminder to fantasy owners about commissioner sites that include trade proposal mechanisms. I know uh, there's a, there's a lot of sites that do that and it's actually quite an interesting feature, but you had a you had a message I thought that was really important that people understand about those trade mechanisms.
1: Yeah, uh, I gotta, you. so you read my Twitter feed, I gotta remember this. Anyway, uh, no, and basically, uh, it goes to the impersonal nature of, of society in general and that, you know, I, I'm not, I'd like trading with you, but, you know, you don't even have to pick up the phone. You, you know, you don't have to do a, a G chat either, but, you know, let's, let's, let's negotiate. Just don't, you know, to me, when, the, when it's people say, well, you can still reject the offer and counter via the mechanism. I don't know it just has a weird feel to it that way when, when someone proposes a a trade over the site mechanism to me that's saying i want you to do this trade and it's not you know this is my offer let's talk about it or, or whatever so i'm just saying reminding people that you know maybe i'm in the minority here maybe i'm not i don't know but you might have a better better success uh on getting a deal that works best for your team if you start with an email or a phone call or a, you know, a private message on Twitter or whatever and saying, hey, I'm interested in, in such and such and so and so, I've got this and this and that, as opposed to just within the site mechanism, proposing a trade and then when you go to the trade, it says accept or dec- decline. Uh, to me, that just doesn't lend itself to uh, to the negotiation. Um, but like I said, I've, I've mentioned this to some people. I say, well, well duh, all you got to do is, you know, it, it also says counter. So... Instead of rejecting, just hit the counter and throw me an offer, and then I can decide. Well, that's not how I negotiate. You know, I don't, I don't negotiate by exchanging offers. You know, I want there to be a little bit of, of uh, feeling out and you know other stuff involved.
0: What I don't like about it, and i I agree with you on this whole issue. What I don't like about getting an offer like that, absent any kind of context, is what is this other guy thinking? Uh, Am I missing something because typically when I get those offers I look at it and I go I don't understand why he thinks I would do this. And oftentimes it's just, you know, somebody hoping to catch you while you're drunk or, or high or something like that and willing to give up a guy just to have some fun clicking the accept button or maybe doing it by mistake or something. But really, I when, I when I get a trade offer from somebody, I'd like to have an idea what they're thinking because maybe they're thinking of something really smart that I'm missing about my own team or about the shape of the league or whatever. And just to get, as you said, just to get a bold face offer, take it or leave it or counter it without any rationale for it, seems to me to miss the, a lot of the point about how trades should work.
1: Right. Now, it, I mean, I, th- I think we both have that same what is he thinking when we get emails or even phone calls. But there's there's some context, there's some texture to frame your response. You know, you can play off of whatever it is, good or bad. You can play off of the tone of the email or the, or, or, or the, the phone call. Where you know here, it's like you said, it's just you know you know so and so proposes so and so for the deal. So yeah, even if even if I get that same you know this guy doesn't you know what's this guy thinking, at least there's something in his in his introduction or there's something there that gives me a reason to write back and to include that in my response. So yeah, I agree that uh, you know even if even if I don't like an email response. I do like the fact that there's something within the email itself to sort of be a jumping off point to, to, to turn a negotiation. In a way that you know i'm being selfish in a way that i'm more comfortable
0: well you have every right to want to be more comfortable but it also offers you a possibility of making the other guy more comfortable as well if you know what he's thinking Uh, and sometimes what he's thinking is fairly obvious he gives you you know max scherzer you give him paul goldschmidt he wants pitching for hitting or vice versa and that's pretty straightforward but a lot of times you look at it and you think well is it that he thinks I need stolen bases because I'm last in stolen bases? Does he not see that I can't catch anybody? Even if I had Billy Hamilton and Billy Burns and every other fast guy named Billy, I'm still not going to make points. So uh, does he not understand You know what I'm trying to accomplish here? I'd, I'd, I need to know what he's suggesting that makes this worth doing for me and not just what makes it worth doing for him, which is usually fairly obvious. He wants Paul Goldschmidt.
2: Yeah, a lot of times, too, that the trade kind of makes sense until you look at your roster and say, you know what, though, that leaves me without a shortstop or, or whatever. So, you know you, see, you know, you have to, you know, but, but, you know, depending upon the tone of the initial offer, you can say, man, I'd love to do that, except that leaves me without a shortstop. Uh, I see that you get a shortstop in the middle. Is there any way we could add another player on both sides to get me a shortstop? So I don't have to go into the the crud of the free agent pool to be a legal roster. So yeah, you know. But uh, whereas that's a whole lot harder to do. If you know, you know. Sure, I could counter with a move on the website. I can counter with a move that includes that middle infielder, but I got no idea who the guy might want on my team or or and the whatnot. So you know, I think the easiest, you know, the thing to do about you just said, you know, he wanted Paul Goldschmidt. A lot of times you get these really, you know bizarre offers and all you know it's it's all in disguise the, the guy wants one, or the gal wants one guy you know a particular player from your team so a lot of times I'll just reply back with it's pretty obvious that you want so and so let's just you know let's just let's let's cut it, let's cut back you know let's just let's focus on this guy and if it gets you know if it grows to another player or two okay but let's start you know you appear to want you know you 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 appear to want Brian Dozier so let's let's work out a deal for Brian Dozier, not half my team. So that's a lot easier to do, too in an email or phone call, than it is exchanging arbitrary offers over a site mechanism. Yeah, I like
0: getting those kind of offers, too, where where the, the the initial offer is six for six or six for seven, and but you look at it and you go, I, I can't imagine how I even make sense out of this. And then you, you do need to boil it back down to one for one or two for one or something like that, for sure. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire, ESPN. And, Todd, as you know, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about some studs and duds, It's a fancy name that I made up because it rhymes. (laughs) However you want to set it up is fine with me, but I usually break it down into hitters and pitchers. Let's start on the hitting side of the ledger. In the American League, who's a stud hitter that you wouldn't mind having on your roster or trading to acquire?
2: Uh, I don't think it's a secret that I've been a a Jay Martinez guy uh, since the draft season and was able to get him in a lot of places, but places I wasn't, um, I'm still interested. Um, A little bit, you know, with Justin Upton acquired, He's pushed down in the order a bit, but the fifth hole is is just fine for me. So, you know, I don't think he's a secret, but uh, that he, you know, I think a lot of people believe at this point. But I might believe just a little bit more about Jay Martinez. So he's a guy I'd I'd like to get on my AL rosters.
0: How about in the National League, a stud hitter that you like?
2: I think a guy that, uh, and I think we talked about this a little bit in the first pitch forum tour in the spring, a guy that, for whatever reason, is penalized because. He's just not the uh, not the shiny new toy that he was a few years ago. That's Andrew McCutcheon. He's still really, really good. Uh, it's just that he's now become boring. And 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 I think that you know he fell to the end of the first round, and he's off to a pretty good start, which is a shame because you're not going to be able to get him in a buy low. But for whatever reason, if you can work on a deal for McCutcheon, he's just as good as he's always been. It's just there's some other really good players too in the first round, so maybe he gets you know his his. Prowess gets pushed down a little bit, but he's still Andrew McCutcheon.
0: Do you notice that when guys like Andrew McCutcheon who come into the league and establish a reputation for being really terrific all-rounders, especially being able to combine a bit of power with a bit of speed, and then the stolen bases as they get older, a little more established, start to fall off? I mean, McCutcheon a few years ago was over 30 stolen bases, then he was in the mid-20s pretty solidly. And then the last couple of years, I think a total of less than 30 over the last two years, And even though he's still a really good player across the board, because he declines in that one category, everybody writes him off as though he's like lost a limb.
2: Yeah, I overvalue speed until you know until people don't run anymore. Yeah, you're right. I I I think that that is what made him a top three player was you were going to get those extra steals. But he's still the the the, 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 I was going to say Tiger had Jada Martinez. The Pirate lineup is still very very stacked. And even though it is in a park where it suppresses runs, they're going to score some runs, that team. So, you know, I think we sometimes overlook the, the, uh, the runs and the RBIs that these players can produce as well, which McCutcheon should be very, very strong. But, yeah, alright. So, I, so maybe he wasn't a top five player for me because of the steals. But to me, he was in that, that five to ten range. And you could get him after ten, uh, in, in most drafts, uh, this, this, this spring. So, I, uh, I don't know. I, it, it, amazing how you look at right, how how he was the great, the, the great, the talk. He was whatever he wanted three or four years ago, and now he's just, oh, um, yeah, it's Andrew McCutcheon.
0: And in fact, when he was a big stolen base guy, at least by Baseball HQ's valuation metrics, when he was a big stolen base guy, 2010, 2011, around there, in the tw- like 20s and 30s, even 2013, uh, his value peaked in a in a big stolen base year. I think he had uh, close to 30, but he also had all those great numbers across the board. And so far, even last year or the year before, when the steals were way off, he was still a 30 $35 player because of everything else that he does. And it just seems like a terrific opportunity to grab a guy who's out of favor, who really has no business being out of favor.
2: Absolutely. No, I agree.
0: Okay, how about a dud hitter in the American League? A guy you think is uh, not going anywhere?
2: Uh, I'm going to duck because I'm not sure if I'll be hit with a lightning bolt or not. But I, I don't know. I need Miguel Sano, and I've been saying that I do love the fact that he's near the top in the uh, one of the newfangled metrics is batted, you know, batted velocity off the bat, and that was going to help sustain a high BABIP in lieu of a low contact rate. But man, that low contact rate—he just doesn't seem but he he just doesn't seem to be making strides in that area. And I think that I'm I'm concerned that I I don't see the strides being made. Just watching us at bats, he doesn't shorten up and try to go the other way with two strikes and and things like that. Maybe he's pressing cuz the team is down, but I don't know. So no, I wasn't on him before and I'm I'm not on him now.
0: Yeah, this year, uh, so far, 56% contact rate. He's he's striking out 44% of the time. And uh, as I've said, uh, people who listen to this show regularly are going to be tired of me saying it, but I think it's a really important message. If a guy is striking out 44% of the time, he can't drive in a run he can't reach on an error he can't get any kind of counting stat whatsoever when he's striking out that often and I, and I understand that you know when he hits a home run he's going to he's going to create some value but gosh almighty in the meantime it's going to be very difficult for him to even if he manages because of his hard hit uh, ability to get a batting average in the low 240s you know up to maybe 250 or so which would be fine given the home run potential but the absence of all of those other counting stats really puts an absolute ceiling on his ability to generate value.
2: He doesn't even get the odd sacrifice fly that a guy that normally part of the order, you know, gets those extra eight RBIs, which doesn't seem like much, but, you know, it could be a point in your standings. So, and it might be that the team, the team is off to really slow start the Twins, and he could be pressing, and he's trying to play the outfield and not run into players and injure them. Uh, so that could have something to do with it as well. But to me, and I'm not a scout, but it's just watching the at-bats, he doesn't seem to be making an effort to improve the contact. And maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. And But that's just my impression at this point.
0: A lot of people complain or have observed that that seems to be the culture of baseball now that uh, you know, going the other way with two strikes, bat control, all that kind of stuff, has simply vanished. Nobody does it anymore, so you can't hold Miguel Sano to that standard, I don't think, as much as we might have before. But yeah, you're very right about that whole idea of sacrifice fly, grounding out to short with a runner at third and forcing in a run. There's a million ways to score a run if you put the ball in play, but there's zero ways of scoring a run if you strike out. Uh, that's the problem. How about a National League dead hitter, Todd?
2: It's a little early you know, to, tr- to go off numbers, so this is almost... I'm almost cheating and going guys I wasn't on during drafting season, and to me one of the biggest was, was yourself, Puig, and I know he's off to a pretty good start. And I'm not saying this means sell high either, but I I, I think he was just going way too fast or too high in drafts. So um, uh, I'm not I just I'm not as high. You know, you can rephrase the question: Who are you not as high on as other people? You know, so for me that's Isiah Puig and. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't know. I just, uh, I wasn't, he was not my take-a-chance-win-it-all bid in the spring.
0: Todd Zola's uh, hitters on the studs and duds, stud hitter from the American League, J.D. Martinez, and the National, Andrew McCutcheon. His duds, Miguel Sanoa of the Twins, Yaziel Puig of the Dodgers. Let's move over to the mound now, Todd. In the American League, who's a stud pitcher, a guy you like?
2: Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not going to say this is cheating, but I do want to make a point um, about Chris Sale. And that is his strikeout. If you were to put, if I were to give you know a pop quiz and write down his strikeout and walk rate and, and Craig Kershaw, Craig Clayton Kershaw's strikeout and walk rate, uh, they're almost the same. And fifty percent of the people would, would guess wrong as to what's what. Uh, one of them has a uh, K rate just a tick higher than the other, and a walk rate just a tick lower. My point being, I mean, I know it's the American League and he, the DH, and and Kershaw's ERA is off the charts, but their skills are almost identical. So you know Chris sailed to me, you know bye, bye, bye um, all over all over him, had a rough ERA last year, but kind of like Kluber. Um, I it, to me it's a mirage.
0: Every so often I hear somebody say, I don't like the way he throws the ball and it is a very quirky and unusual throwing mechanism, but he's been doing it for quite a while. Are you at all worried about that?
2: No, not on a, on a dynasty basis in a dynasty league maybe. But uh, you know, it's a silly example. But the example I like to use is, you know, for for years we were worried that Kevin Apier was going to get hurt, and we were right in in year twelve of his career. So you know, on a on a day on a year to year, you know, right now Chris Hill is healthy, so I'm not worried about this year. Maybe I'm wrong, but if that if that probably comes a little bit of a discount because other people are concerned, I'm willing I'm willing to take it and. Uh, I don't know. People develop, you know, their, their muscle structure, don't you kind of, you know, weird. I don't understand why, but I'm told that a car, a piece of, you know, machinery gets used to a driver, the way they hit the gas, the way they hit the brakes, and performs better if the same person drives that car as opposed to many people driving it. I don't know, maybe, maybe because he, it's his motion that his body adapts to it, and we shouldn't be worried. I don't know.
0: I'm with you. I think uh, so many pitchers have had beautiful throwing motions and lasted a year and a half before they get Tommy John. I mean, look at all the classic pitchers: Matt Harvey, uh, Jose Fernandez. These guys have pretty nice throwing motions. And Chris Sale's been pitching while they've been sitting in hospital beds or in rehab facilities. Who's a stud pitcher in the National League you like?
2: Um, guy I alluded to before, and Johnny Cueto, and. Um, you know, we all looked at the park and said, you know, if anybody's going to improve, it's going to be Cueto in that park and a couple of rough outings in, in, in Kansas City last year. I, I just, you know, I don't, I'm not expecting the double-digit strikeout performance, but I think Cueto, if you were fading pitching a little bit, I think Cueto was a guy that, you know, put on your staff, get a little bit better hitting, and you're, by the end of the season, your pitching is going to be almost as good, if not better, than somebody who went after one of the studs early.
0: And switching over to the duds in the American League, who's a pitcher you don't trust, don't want?
2: Uh, Dallas Keuchel. Um, and a lot of this, or some of this, I should say, stems from some of the uh, kind of elegant research that I got to present that Baseball HQ did on the first pitch forum tour. Uh, real quick, you know, st- swinging a strike portends to a certain canine. Uh, I believe it was Steven Nickran did the research where uh, the number of balls should portend to a certain walk rate. And Keichel's Keuchel, walk rate, you know, air quotes should have been higher than it was. And he had trouble with control in the past. So I kind of, to me, that was a, red, a yellow flag that uh, his control may, he may not keep the control gains that he got last year, along with the fact that that second-half strikeout rate really spiked. And I wasn't sure where the landing point was. is it a combination of the first and second half, or, you know, was the second half real? So to me, there were enough uh, yellow, yellow alerts to get someone else in that tier. Quato if available.
0: (laughs) And uh, in the National League, who's a dud pitcher that you're a little leery of?
2: Uh, Adam Wainwright, and it's cheating a little bit because he hasn't pitched very well, but uh, mainly because uh, I talk a lot about innings. People don't think about innings as far as um, numbers go, and his K-rate was already falling. So a falling K-rate and coming off an injury and being a little bit older, I just didn't see the 230, 240 inning season out of of him this year. So I did not see the the number of, you know, he used to be okay with strikeouts because he threw 240 innings. Uh, But I didn't see the raw number of strikeouts. So not only, you know, so I was nervous anyway, and he just doesn't look to be the same guy at this point. So even if he does get it together, I don't think we're going to see the seven and eight inning performances Going forward, so overall, he's not going to be quite as useful to a, a season-long fantasy team.
0: Todd Zola's stud and dud pitchers: American League stud Chris Sale in the National League, Johnny Cueto of the Giants, the duds uh, Dallas keichel of Houston and Adam Wainwright of St. Louis. Todd, tell us where listeners can read more from Todd Zola. Uh,
2: well, Masters Ball. We got uh, working for RotoWire now. And the uh, daily notes, if you're if for seasonal and DFS on ESPN. Uh, and then I'm always on Twitter. I mean, it may not be all baseball. It may be some, some stupid joke. But, uh, you know, I kind of tweet several times a day, at Todd Zola. And, um, you know, got a Facebook as well. But uh, everything that shows on Twitter heads over to Facebook. So Twitter's the place to be.
0: Todd, as always, it's been just a ton of fun and very interesting. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure, Patrick. Uh, already looking forward
0: to the next time. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, RotoWire, ESPN Fantasy, and of course, he's a regular expert guest, and we're glad of it here at Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 19 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest expert for this Tuesday Tout edition of the show. From Masters Ball, RotoWire, and ESPN Fantasy, Todd Zola always delivers the goods for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now, you might have noticed we lost Todd's microphone there right at the end of our discussion, but we caught up with Todd by phone, and all's well that ends well, as the Bard tells us. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and please send us a message on our email address bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular Friday news and comment edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.